Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game. With me, Kevin Day, and football finance expert and Profanosaurus contributor, Kieran Maguire. Actually, Kieran, a lot of the money behind the beautiful game is in the Cayman Islands. Could you arrange a visit just so I can cool down a bit? Uh, certainly, yes. There's, uh, there's, there's a few clubs uh, registered there. Uh, I, I think uh, uh, an, an on-island investigation is required by you, Kevin, actually. So uh, I'll, I'll get Guy to... Uh, to organise the flights from his petty cash. Yeah, yeah, we'll end up paying for them, though, won't we? So it's all right. It's all right for you. You're in your 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 cottage in the woods by the beach. It must be lovely and cool down there. <laughs> it, it's it's ridiculously hot down. I know it's it's ridiculous. down the south. It's ridiculously hot here, and uh, it, there's a helicopter in the background, Kieran, which is uh, <laughs> will make you very nostalgic, I imagine, for South London. But hopefully, it'll move away shortly. It's it's Thursday, so it's news day, and there's there's plenty of it. Plus, we'll also be hearing from one of Kieran's silver-tongued friends, Daniel G, a lawyer, whose clients include uh, Premier League and Championship clubs and half of Kieran's family, I understand. You spoke to him about half an hour ago, so hopefully Guy can edit out the rude bits in time. <laughs> we'll do our best. Of course, now, we have got two big stories. One of them is, is Bray. We're recording this on Wednesday afternoon because, of course, you have media commitments. Um so this is a kind of a breaking story. Macclesfield Town have been relegated to the National League after the EFL appealed against the suspension of a points deduction. Uh, it's good news for Stevenage fans, obviously. But um, after trying to defend the EFL last week here, and I, I can't see how anyone's punished here except the fans, although I guess it does mean that club owner Mr Alcardi has cemented his place in your top 10 scumbag list. Well, yes, yes, he he, he has been around, uh, flo- floating around the table for some time. Um, Macclesfield have failed to pay the wages on numerous occasions during the season, uh, and the EFL, uh, quite rightly, in in my view, have uh, have, have taken them to, them to task. Yeah. Um, but they they were given a series of points deductions. They were originally effectively given thirteen a thirteen point deduction, um, with some with with a further amount suspended. And that that deduction wasn't awarded by the EFL itself. It's uh, it's determined by um, an independent panel. Um, but the the EFL thought the panel wasn't independent enough. So so yeah, to sort of a, you know to, to quote Animal Farm or to misquote Animal Farm, you know, all panels are independent, but some <laughs> are more independent than others. Um, so um, that's the chuckle I use comp- for that, that's the chuckle I use for English literature jokes, Kieran. I'm, I'm the chap. When you go and see a Shakespeare play, I'm the chap at the back end. <laughs> That's very good. That's a pun. Very good. <laughs> go on, carry uh, or, or, George Orwell is is one of my all time heroes. Um, I'm not surprised. So, um, in in terms of the the the, the revised uh, approach taken by the panel, um, a further four points was deducted. But remember, when points are deducted. Then they are multiplied up on a points per game ver- 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 algorithm. So effectively, it was 21 points that have been deducted from uh, Macclesfield Town. So despite Steven- Stevenage only winning three games all season, um, they-, they have been saved. They've been saved by by two uh, votes from the EFL. One by this panel. And uh, a second one by the the clubs who decided to kick Berry Football Club out of the league yeah. twelve months ago, uh, which of course meant that only one side was going to be relegated from the EFL. And it will come as no great surprise that 
Berry, that Berry were voted out by clubs, including Stevenage. So, you know, we, we said at the time there was a self-interest element and it's, it's not it's not a criticism. You know, we, we, we can understand that self-interest does work, but football should be surely something related to what happens on the pitch. Stevenage themselves were up on an EFL charge um, a, a couple of months ago, and their QC got them off that charge, which could have resulted in a points deduction. So it's it's all as always it's very messy. The EFL um, have come out with a press release and they've said there is you know this is as far as this will go and they've said there will be no further comment on the Macclesfield website. Uh, it says there will be further comment because jobs are going to be lost yeah. uh, as a result of this when when the club goes into the National League. This is all assuming that the National League is going to take place because the, the, the EFL have said previously that if the if the National League does not take place next season, then that calls into question whether their clubs can be relegated to it. So, yeah. you know, it, it, we, I think we're almost at the end of this particular very, very sordid and sorry tale, uh, but, but as always, not quite. Well, we've said for quite some time that the EFL's ideal situation is to make this the National League's problem, essentially, with, with Macclesfield. It, it, it's an old argument that I'm rehearsing here, but again, it, it's not really Mr Alcardi who's being punished, is it? It's fans of the club. So does it does it reset now? Does It becomes a National League problem, but does Mr Alcardi stop paying wages or continue to not pay wages and start again, as it were, with a, a warning, then a slap wrist, and then more point suspensions or does this is it is it entirely outside the EFL's jurisdiction now it, it's now nothing to do with the EFL as far as they are concerned um Macclesfield Town have been relegated um all the only continuing relationship is that Macclesfield Town will get the equivalent of a parachute payment um in the National League next season and this is normally around about 50 percent of the the uh, the payments that League Two clubs get from the EFL TV deal. Now remember that clubs in the EFL, the majority of their TV money actually comes from the Premier League. So so Mac won't get any of that. Yeah. Um, they they will get fifty percent of uh, the, the EFL deal, which yeah we, we're talking we're talking a six figure sum. So it, it's. Uh, uh, you know, it, it's it's better to have than not have because the National League TV deal is uh, is is worth buttons. Yeah, you know, I think with clubs are perhaps be lucky to get around about ten grand out of that. Uh, you know, as, as somebody that uh, I'm I'm very fond of Macclesfield. I, I used to go running in Macclesfield. Um, I used to go and visit Ian Curtis's grave in Macclesfield. It's uh, it, it's a sad day. Yeah, I had one of my happiest match of the day experiences with a group of Macclesfield fans travelling down to Chelsea for the FA Cup. Um, and as you say, the great Ian Curtis of Joy Division was from Macclesfield. We we know, Kieran, why the Wigan penalty was um, adopted straight away, the 12-point suspension, because they went into, into administration and Macclesfield and Sheffield Wednesday, theirs was a disciplinary issue. But the confusion over when points deductions apply won't... Uh, take away from the unfairness that Wigan fans feel, will it? No, no, there is there is no consistency. We've seen Macclesfield being charged for offences in 2019-20 and punished in 2019-20, as has been the case in Wigan. Uh, Sheffield Wednesday have been charged for an offence in 2017-18 
but their their penalty doesn't come through until 2020-21. And Derby County have been charged for an offence in 27-18, and we don't even know what's going to happen. We don't know whether the announcement will be this season or next season. So there is a lack of consistency. I appreciate that uh, the, the Sheffield Wednesday and the Derby cases are complex, um, but uh, you can only feel that, that sense of dissatisfaction and, and letdown that uh, the fans of both Macclesfield um, and Wigan are feeling. And certainly there was, uh, there, there was some uh, blood running red on, on social media yesterday yes, uh, between, uh, between Mac and Stevenage fans. Is the EFL, EFL's hardened stance bad news for Sheffield Wednesday fans? We had a question in the last pod from Vernon, uh, the London Owl, asking whether uh, Sheffield Wednesday appealed and then lost. The, they would get further points deductions. Does this indicate that the EFL are not going to be happy with any suspension of, of points deductions or any successful appeal against their decisions? Um, I, I think they, they take legal advice from their team. Uh, in, in respect of Sheffield Wednesday, they will feel that the club was given the maximum potential points deduction under the rules for uh, breaches of financial fair play. Uh, I know that other clubs were pushing for the deduction to be increased to up to 21 points because they felt that some of Sheffield Wednesday's behaviour uh, surrounding the, the sale of Hillsborough was uh, was inappropriate, but those those charges were successfully defended. Uh, you know, clearly, Charlton fans are are very disappointed with what's happened because the the penalty has been pushed back, and, and the reaction I think of most Sheffield Wednesday fans is well, they're not happy, you're never happy with a deduction, but uh, they they seem to feel that it could have been a lot worse. Well, speaking of Charlton, I, I had a, a WhatsApp message from. A chap called Lee Ayres, who's a friend of the pod and a, and a Palace fan, um, and him being from South London may explain why he uses this particular word. But he basically said, if Charlton are disappeared by the EFL, could that be a potential lifeline for Macclesfield? Um, potentially, yes, it could because I, there's no way the uh, there's no way that the EFL will want to promote three teams from the National League. Um, they have, remember, had just had a season in which they they existed with seventy one clubs. Yeah. So that that could have set a precedent. Um, I, I think it's it, it is clutching at straws to a certain extent. But you know, in, in respect of Charlton, and certainly the the Charlton Athletic Supporters Trust have been uh, very vocal, trying to uh, gen, get get support, and they've been getting lots of support from uh, fans of many other clubs so over the course of the last uh, twenty four to forty eight hours. Um, I think they they genuinely fear for the for the existence of their club mm. because of the precarious situation in which it presently finds itself. Where are the FA in all this, Kieran? I mean, we spoke briefly in the last pod about not really knowing the extent of the FA's brief or influence anymore. Because when when you and I were growing up, the match day program would sometimes have the football league review stapled inside it, and occasionally you'd see Alan Hardacre on the steps of the football league headquarters announcing another harebrained pre-season tournament. But it always seemed to me that it was the FA that ran the game. But so where are they? Where are they? Because the one institution you hear nothing about when it comes to Charlton, Sheffield Wednesday, Macclesfield, Stevenage clubs are going out of business, clubs being you know, forced into administration. Is the FA are conspicuous by their absence in all this? Do they not care or is it not part of their remit? Um, they've effectively washed their hands of the professional game. Um, I, I saw the uh, DCMS 
broadcast uh, when, when it was when it, it spoke to Debbie Jevons of the EFL. Uh, Greg Clark from the Football Association uh, he he wandered into the uh, to the, the panel's investigation and he said that uh, the FA had had no involvement at all with uh, the demise of Berry Football Club until four weeks after it being kicked out of the EFL. It just doesn't want to know. Right. It wants to focus on England and the grassroots. Um, as far as it's concerned, the individual competitions, and by that, you know, the likes of the National League, the likes of the uh, the EFL and, and the Premier League, they organise their own competitions. And, and the FA just wants to focus on selling games at Wembley, organising concerts at Wembley, um, and uh, you know, distributing money to grassroots um, in, and things of that nature. Um, so we, we do have this this tripartite where you've got the EFL, the, the Premier League and the FA, and, and it's convenient for them to, to point figures at everybody else when, when there's bad news. But the FA, surely, they are still England's English football's governing body, aren't they? The, the Premier League and the EFL, my understanding, is still answer to the FA. Is that not the case? They are answerable to the FA, um, but effectively the, the FA have given them a free pass to do whatever they want. Oh, OK. Um, well, the big story of the week, and we promised an in-depth look at this uh, when we spoke on Monday, is the League 1 and League 2 salary cap. Uh, off you go. I'll be over here fanning the cap. Right. Um, so the, the, the EFL club owners, because remember, it's they that make the decision. The EFL ultimately is an owner's organisation. Um, they voted on Friday in League Two. Uh, the vote was 22 in favour and two against oh, wow. to have a £1.5 million wage cap. Now, that's to be split between that £1.5 million just applies to the players. doesn't apply to managers, doesn't apply to coaches, right. uh, doesn't apply to under-21s as well. Um, and certainly talking to somebody who who's looked at things in the in the world of rugby, um, they've said that the rugby experience is that that means that clubs are actually quite keen to bring through the younger players. But when you get to 28 or 29, the clubs are now going, well, we're going to kick you out the door because you're costing us money yeah, and the yeah. under 21s aren't. Um, so I, th- I think there's there's some unintended consequences of this. In League Two, the cap is 2.5 million, which again is split between the 22 man squad. I think. Sorry, League, be 20... Do you mean League One? It's 2.5 million. Sorry, League One, 2.5 yeah. million. Um, so that works out as 113,000 pounds per annum per player. Um, that compares to a present median of 135. Right. So it's not a, it's not a huge cap, but uh, it, it is driving down. But then you start to look in the in the small print, and that figure of 113,000 pounds per player on average that includes your bonuses, you know, so win bonuses, appearance bonuses. That includes taxes, so that presumably includes national insurance. That includes signing on fees, oh, right, and okay. it includes agents' fees as well. Oh, blimey. So you know, what the player is going to get, as, as what's going to be offered to him in League Two, is, uh, is, is, unu- is, is questionable. Now, my, my fear as a result of this, if you then look at the championship, and remember championship clubs voted for this as well, and the vote in League Two was 16 in favour, seven against, and one abstention. In order for the the vote to go through, you needed two thirds majority, which was 16 clubs. So it was as close to um, 
you know, at the edge as as could be possible. But they did manage to get that through. Do we know? Who um, abs- do we know who abstained? We we don't. Hmm. We don't. We, we I think the clubs that voted against were the likes of Sunderland, Portsmouth, of, Ipswich, of um, and I think the clubs who had just been relegated as well. Um, now I did did get in contact with uh, a few club owners and. Um, you have to excuse the language here. I, I know some uh, listeners are uh, a bit uh, a bit upset. Um, in, in terms of the clubs that voted for the uh, sorry, sorry voted against the wage cap, they were described by and I quote uh, by by a club owner as selfish fuckers. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they said that the clubs voting against the rules are the very same clubs that have been or are still in, and again, I quote, the shit. Um, the rules forces owners to be stronger against ever-increasing wage costs. Um, and, and it then went on to say, if the EFL didn't act, the government would have put in an independent regulator. So whether that was one of the reasons why the vote finally went in in favour, um, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, and again, yeah, the language was fairly robust. Mm. These fuckers keep saying half the league is going into admin, yet they refuse any measures to reduce costs. Right. So, you know, clearly there was a lot, lot of emotion at the meeting and uh, we, we're not getting a, uh, a universal viewpoint um, taken by the, club, the clubs in League One. I think it's OK to swear if you're quoting, Kieran. Okay. I'm just thinking about that. Some things you say, Kieran, you could put as many quotation marks as you like around them. We're still going to get angry tweets, but I think that's fine as long as you're quoting. Um, there's two things here, Kieran. First of all, this is not in relation to COVID. This is not a, a, a short-term stopgap measure. This is something that's been discussed for quite some time in order to protect the financial future of League One, League Two clubs. And also, as you say, it will surely impact championship clubs as well because – if you're in the bottom half of the championship and you go down with a big wage bill, then you're you're in trouble, aren't you? So I get this is almost three questions. Well, so what's the time scale of this? How long have clubs got to uh, put their house in order? Well, th- there are transitional rules because this, re- as, you, as you rightly put, Kevin, this will, this will absolutely hammer clubs who are being relegated. The median salary in the championship is seven hundred and sixty-five grand a year. Wow! Now that's you three players in League One. Wow. So, so what what they've said is that if you are a club which has been relegated from the division above, if you've got somebody on seven hundred and fifty grand a year, what the EFL are going to do is they're going to ignore what the player is actually going to be paid, and instead they're going to impute the average salary of a player in League One or League Two, i.e., in the division to which you're dropping. So anybody that's on an existing salary, and we've had this discussion at length before, because you know, clearly you've got you've got history of of working in in HR that a, a contract for employment is is a commitment. Of course. So clubs just simply use the excuse, well, we've been relegated, and 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 other people, because remember the, the the clubs in the championship they don't vote on the League One salary cap, so mm. um, you can't force clubs who have just been kicked out of the championship through being relegated to take on board these particular rules, and that also applies to players who have existing contracts. Um, in League One. So if you take a look at a club such as Sunderland, Sunderland's wage bill last season was 27 million. Um, 
you know that's that's ten times the amount of the the the, the, the wage cap. Um, their cap, their salaries, they will roll through um, until they're up for renewal. So anybody that's on a bigger contract is going to to, to stick on it. In in my opinion, because you're not going to move to another League One club because immediately they're going to say, well, yeah, we can only pay you this uh, this hundred and thirteen thousand pounds a year and you know a player will be daft to take that as an offer if he's on a on a, on a factor of that um how it's going to be policed um we're not quite sure um yeah you know, i think the efl are gonna have to go and employ a, a couple of clipboard clipboard kids with with v-neck jumpers to be going around checking the wage payments of the clubs on a regular basis but i think they're going to be able to do that by give by but by being given access to the payroll records of clubs themselves I'm not going to lie to you, Kieran. I stopped taking notes halfway through that because it's it's complex, and I, I suspect this is something we're going to be asked about on a regular basis in in weeks to come. So um, I think we'll leave it there because if if I ask the questions I now have written down, we'll be here all day, and we do have other stories to talk about. But this is this is not going. I mean, as you say, the, the clubs that are using those words that you so colourfully quoted are not going to let let this go without a fight, are they, I imagine, and, and the silver tongue lawyers are going to be involved. But I would love to find out who the club was that abstained and what their reasoning for abstaining was, because that strikes me that that's something in future that the lawyers will be looking at, because you know that that could have that's how close it was that that vote could have could have changed it either way. So anyway, um, Scottish football has been shown a yellow card uh, this week, as one tabloid headline so nicely put it this morning. Celtic and Aberdeen's next two games have been postponed by the Scottish government after players breached quarantine rules. Now we laughed at this originally, Kieran, or I did. Um, but if the livelihood of club staff is jeopardised because irresponsible player behaviour leads to the season being halted in Scotland, then that's not funny anymore, is it? Certainly. I mean, if, if you take a look at some of the comments from um, managers and, and sort of, you know, fairly senior play, people in Scottish football, they're absolutely aghast at what's happened. Um, the Celtic player, Bolly Bolingoli, yeah. who went to Spain, um, went on, looks like he, he had a few days. Yeah, no, it, we, yeah I, quite, I quite fancy a few days in Spain. But we all know that if you go to Spain, you're subject to a 14-day um period of self-isolation didn't appear to uh, apply that he said it was an error of judgment now yeah an, an error of judgment is perhaps going at 35 in a 30 mile note at 30 zone and you're not quite keeping an eye on on the on on your dashboard you don't as an error of judgment book a flight book accommodation go on the flight spend a few days and then come back and then yeah. forget to tell your employer oh yeah. by the way i've been to spain um so um Celtic are furious with the player. Uh, Neil Lennon, is, uh, who, who's never too far away from a temper tantrum, he's, he's gone off on one uh, at the player. Um, he's very, very disappointed. Um, but uh, Nicola Sturgeon has said that if there is a repeat of this, then the, the Scottish government, uh, they have the ability to, to pass effectively a rule which will stop Scottish football from taking place. And then we are talking job losses. Yeah. We're talking job losses in the back office. Yeah. We're talking job office uh, jo- uh, job losses for players themselves because Scottish football is not well paid. Um, you know, the clubs are living on the edge as it is. Uh, it, it, it's spectacularly dumb. Having said that, last Thursday in Manchester, Real Madrid squad rolled into town. They weren't there for 14 days before yeah. uh, the match 
went off and, and then they popped on a flight and buggered off again. Um, so, yeah, the, uh, is, is it two sets of rules? You know, one for if you're Real Madrid um, and and one if you're Bolly Bolingoli. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not I'm not defending the player. What I think he's done is spectacularly dumb. And it's caused huge issues for Celtic because we're already into the start of the season. Um, there's only one possible midweek opportunity to play this season. Um, and Celtic, when they return from the uh, from the two matches which they, they've had to have postponed, um, yeah, they, they potentially could be 11 points behind yeah. whoever's on top of the SPFL. Now, that that could be, uh, I think that could be Hibs, that could be Ross County, could be some other club in Glasgow, I think called Rangers as well. Um, you know, so Celtic, Celtic's fans are going to be pretty furious because that's, even if they've got games in hand, that's that's a big gap to have to fill. Yeah, I'd be interested to hear from Real Madrid fans on that because my guess is that they will have been in a bubble, they'll be on a private jet, they'll be back in the bubble, etc. But I would be interested to hear with the rules, you know, the rules being applied differently. Alex Dyer, the Kilmarnock manager and ex-Mediocre uh, Palace player, was brilliant for Hull until we bought him. Um, he was quite sanguine about this, saying, well, what can a club do? They're young men, they're going to do what young men do. But the, the guidelines in Scotland, if it was here, where the guidelines are still flexible and fluid, depending on whether Dominic Cummings needs his eyes tested or not, I could understand it a little bit more. But in Scotland, the rules are very, very clear uh, and very consistently applied. So the players have got no excuse for not knowing them. And it, it seems to me that the club, the club captain, they, they need to take a firmer stance on this. Because as you say, what... It, it, you know, Skylark's hijinks is one thing, but if it leads to people losing their job in this environment, that's simply not good enough. Um, two more questions, three more questions before we get into your interview. Uh, investigations by HMRC into the tax affairs of professional footballers have trebled in the last year. Any particular reason, Kieran? Um, well, I think it is all related to the the issue of image rights. Um, if if you are a footballer and all of your money is paid to you as a salary. And realistically here, I, I think we're talking about uh, players who are in the Premier League, perhaps some in the Championship as well. Um, you're going to be paying PAYE at 45% on your earnings. Um, and you know, clearly there will be a, uh, a silver-tongued accountant and lawyer will say, well, yeah, we've, we've got an idea for getting around this. Mm. And the way that they do this is that they say to the club, a proportion of my client's remuneration is for his image rights, and those image rights will be paid to a separate company. So they won't be paid to the player, and the image rights company will pay tax at 19% if it's located uh, in the UK, or if it's in the Cayman Islands, um, far less than that. Mm. So what HMRC have said, well, this seems to be taking place a little bit too often um, for our liking. So the number of investigations in respect of players has gone up from 87 to 246. The number of investigations into agents who have been involved with these things has more than doubled from 23 to 55. And the number of clubs who are under investigation has gone from 23 to 25. And I have seen some clubs in in their footnotes to their accounts, which, as you know, is uh, is where I live when I'm not podcasting. Um they they have actually admitted that they're under investigation at present. HMRC have said we, we've collected an extra three hundred and thirty-two million pounds in tax. So he said clearly it's not chicken feed mm. that's involved. Um, 
you know, my, my experience, and I suspect yours is too, uh, in terms of dealing with HMRC, is they're normally quite reasonable, provided you don't take the mickey. Mm. And I, I think some clubs have, or some players and their agents have been taking the mickey. If you're Sergio Aguero, if you're Harry Kane, if you're Marcus Rashford, you are a high-profile footballer. And yes, people will pay you a lot of money for your image rights. Mm. And so therefore, 20% of the, the income and, and what HMRC is saying, if you go above 20%, we're going to investigate. We're going to take a bit of a deeper look. And and it could be for Sergio Aguero or, or Harry Kane. And I, I don't know whether these are the players involved, of course, none of my business, um, that they might actually come say, yeah, we'll allow 25, we'll allow, allow 30. If you are... Yeah, you know, with due respect, if you're if you're Palace's third choice left back, if you're Brighton's seventeenth midfield central midfield player, um, the chances are that you're not going to have image rights because people aren't asking after your your image or your signature on a particular product, and therefore, if your agent is is claiming thirty or forty percent of income through image rights, HMRC are going to come down on you like a ton of bricks. This is interesting, Kieran, because I remember. And in our second and third pod, we talked about HMRC, and you said at the time that there are probably only two or three people at most who was who was who were actually full time investigating professional footballers. So that clearly that's changed, has it? Yeah, I, I think HMRC um, they they are aware of people in the public domain being. Uh, subject to greater scrutiny. It looks like that this particular team has been boosted. And I suspect the reason why this particular team in HMRC has been boosted is because they've been getting results. So, you know, if, if they if they'd been failing, if, if they uh, if, if their discussions with the accountants and lawyers representing the players had been negative uh, and they hadn't managed to generate much money, that that particular team would have been kept at a, a couple of couple of people involved. Mm. But um, clearly, they have been successful, so therefore, their, their senior management team will have given them support in in the form of extra staff. Yeah, I, I believe producer Guy has put in an order for up to twenty mugs with our photographs on. So, so do we get a separate image rights deal for that? Well, um, we'll, we'll have to wait and see on that. <laughs> uh, I, I hope this is this is the job for Bobby Numbers. Yes, indeed. Yeah, and, and well, there would be more mugs, but I believe the Baroness has refused point blank so far to release an image of her for the other side of the mug. Now, um, the, the Women's Community Shield is returning for the first time since 2008. It will be played before the Men's Community Shield. Um, great for the profile of the women's game, but there's a couple of things here, Kieran. Financially, for the FA, surely the two Community Shield games are games they could do without aren't they? I mean, it's cost them a lot of money to put these games on to nobody. And the whole idea of the Charity Shield, as it was, now the Community Shield, was to raise money for good causes, and no money will be raised. So I can't quite understand why there's a... We're even playing the Men's Community Shield game, let alone adding an extra one to it. Albeit, I'm all for the fact that there should, of course, be a Women's Community Shield. Um, well, I, I think... Because the, the WSL was curtailed at such short notice, um, the, the, the people involved in the women's game have been saying, well, how can we get a bit more attention for the fact that the season is starting right. uh, early in September? So so this, this is an opportunity for Manchester City and Chelsea to showcase themselves um, and you know, perhaps get more interest. Although that there, there's no money coming in from gate receipts, there will still be sponsorship for the game. Right. Uh, I, I believe McDonald's historically have paid up to, to one million pounds to uh, to sponsor the men's game. So there's a potential for a sponsor to come in here. Just that one um, game, a million pound for one game. Million pound for the one game. Yeah, wow. absolutely. Okay. Uh, 
So, I mean, you're absolutely right. Uh, the Women's Community Shield, it's, it's not being played in the WSL era. Um, I, th I think the, the women's game, which, which was making so much progress, has been hit more significant than the yeah. men's game because at least yeah. the Premier League and the Championship did return and, and therefore there is some sort of momentum in the, in the men's game uh, which has been lost as far as the women's game. So by having this match take place before the the men's community shield and and it's being uh, it's being broadcast on the BBC mm. uh, it, it's a way of starting to regenerate interest in the women's game good okay well Welsh football clubs say they have a serious eye on the potential financial implications of playing in Europe's top competitions like chartering flights for one thing um, I imagine there's going to be many leagues in Europe doing that due to coronavirus wondering whether they can actually afford to take part in European competition. Yeah, so so as far as the Welsh clubs are concerned, and, and here we're talking Connorskey Nomads, Barlatown, Barrytown, and the New Saints, um, they are potentially going into one-legged ties uh, because for the preliminary rounds for both the Europa League and the Champions League, they're not going to be the traditional two-legged to try to cut back on on fixture congestion as much as anything else. Um, they get one hundred ninety-nine thousand pounds for a Europa League match and 208 for a Champions League. But in, in terms of the costs, if, if you are drawn away, so let's say that you are you know, the New Saints and you're, dri you're, you're drawn away to a club in Iceland or Albania, um, a charter flight, because there's no regular flights going, of course, at present to, to many locations, a charter flight, we're, we're talking up to around about half of that. It could be up to, to 90K for a charter flight. On top of that, of course, you've got COVID testing. And even if you're playing at home, what UEFA have now said is that the the stadium has to be UEFA safety compliant. Right. And the likes of Barlatown and Barrytown, their, their stadia are unlikely to satisfy that. So therefore, they're going to have to go and play at the Cardiff City Stadium, which they're going to have to hire. So therefore, that's going to so cost if you play at home. There's cost if you play away. And for the clubs in the Welsh League, um, even if they just get through or even just play in, in one or two matches, as far as the preliminary rounds are concerned, the money that they generate, we're, we're talking, if you get to the third preliminary round, you'll have made in total around about three quarters of a million quid. That can last you the season mm. um, because of the nature of the game, given that they're not going to be able to have fans uh, taking, uh, being able to attend for the foreseeable future. You know, that, that, again, is, is a lifesaver. Um, but it must be really frustrating. They've got the honour of representing their country in, in these uh, competitions. But from a financial perspective, they'll be struggling to, to break even. Uh, do we know if UEFA will be sympathetic to those financial problems or are there sanctions from UEFA if you fail to take part in the tournament? Um, UEFA to date have said nothing. They have said that they're going to try to give out some some more money to clubs um, who are affected within Europe. And what we've also seen is um, some countries have said we are willing to be a bit like what we're seeing at present in respect of the Europa League final matches and the Champions League. Um, we're willing to be sort of a, a central place. So I believe Cyprus is, is one country oh, well, okay. um, whereby um, you can play all of the matches effectively back to back and that will help to reduce the overall costs. Well, okay, well, that makes sense, which is probably why UEFA won't do it. But um, uh, it's interview time, Kieran. Uh, and earlier today, top accountant, Kieran Maguire, that's you, met top lawyer Daniel G to talk football finance. Imagine how much that conversation would cost in real life, Kieran. Well, I'm, I'm free. I'm a teacher, remember? 
yeah, pub- you keep, public servant you, and all that. You you keep saying that in that kind of nineteen seventy nine hippie sort of way, but you know, there are there are hidden costs when it comes to you, Kieran. We know that. Um, anyway, here's what here's what Daniel had to say to you. Anyway. Hi, I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insights, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Thanks so much for coming on the show. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. I'm good. Thanks very much for having me. This is, I think, this is my debut, so I'm feeling a little bit more nervous than usual. But hopefully, you'll you'll calm me down, and uh, we'll get into the details shortly. Terrific, terrific. Uh, I mean, we, we could probably do 24 hours non-stop in terms of the legal issues surrounding football just over the last month or two. But I thought I'd focus on on a couple of stories which have been very big in the public domain, um, have stoked quite a bit of controversy as well. Um, and and you know, we, we like controversy on the show. The, the first is in relation to uh, the Manchester City verdict from Cass. Um, you know, you, you, you've now seen the full publication from Cass. Um, as, as a lawyer, um, what, what's your understanding of, as to the reasons behind City effectively successfully overturning the original verdict from UEFA itself? Yeah, so I've, I've, I've spent some time looking over the judgment because obviously it's ni- over 90 pages. Um, it's very detailed, is the truth. Um, and there's a lot of nuance um, and a lot of legal principles involved. But the, the, the very, very short answer, which then leads into a much longer discussion, is um, there was insufficient evidence. I mean, it really is um, as simple as that. Um, the the leaked emails, the um, evidence that was provided for in the, the football leaks um, that effectively you know, started and initiated the UEFA procedure were not sufficient to effectively demonstrate um, the significant and substantive nature of what Manchester City were alleged to have done. And if I can go into a few points here, um, there were were some really telling um, um, critiques in the actual judgment. And for anyone that's actually going to look at it or has looked at it in a bit of detail, I I think the actually most important paragraph is, and it's only because I've got it right next to me when I was doing a bit of prep for it, is paragraph 215. And basically, put to paragraph 215 more or less says that the, the effectively the charge that UEFA brought, that Man City wasn't charged for attempting to disguise equity funding for sponsorship contributions. So that was effectively, that, that's what they weren't done because th- those emails do show from at least from a unilateral perspective to a degree, a one way that there, there could have been some misunderstanding or misinterpretation over that disguised equity funding. But what they were charged with was erroneous reporting of financial information, which requires a completed act. So again, without going into the detail, and you, you know, you're the king of the financial information more than me, 
But what effectively um, um, Man City were arguing, and remember, Cass were looking at this afresh. UEFA's club financial control body, the adjudicatory chamber, had come to its decision, but Cass was looking at this afresh. And what um, uh, UEFA effectively said was that these emails, along with uh, some other financial information, um, uh, met the comfortable satisfaction standard for demonstrating the breaches. Now, what Man City effectively said, well, we'll put you to the evidence, show us and demonstrate that because the charge was so significant, effectively erroneous reporting of financial information, that was effectively saying the auditors, the accountants, all of the executives that have given pretty substantive witness statements are all effectively lying in and in cahoots and are effectively um, uh, collaborating um, for some big, um, um, for uh, effectively demonstrating some pretty large um, fraud to a degree. So the, 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 the points that come out of this, number one, in my mind, is the actual charge that UEFA brought was very significant. If they potentially brought less substantive charges, i.e. not so all-encompassing charges, there is the possibility that City may have been found guilty um, uh, of breaching the regulations. But because effectively that charge was so substantive, it was a very high bar to, to reach. And very briefly, the second point, which um, is talked about at length, actually, in the judgment as well, um, is the, the lack of corroborating evidence. And fascinatingly, at least fascinatingly for a lawyer, the, the first part of the judgment talks about the fact that UEFA didn't actually ask and request for contemporaneous documents which would have backed up those emails, those emails to provide significant evidence because they wanted to get this decision done at CAS before the summer period where the qualification for next season's competition would have come in. So effectively, and uh, I would argue to a degree, UEFA made a pretty difficult strategic decision, one which effectively, I think, backfired to a degree because they could have and should have perhaps asked for those extra disclosures of those emails, of that contemporaneous document backing up the leaked emails, which would have then gone some way perhaps to be able to demonstrate that overarching um, uh, yeah, overarching erroneous reporting that they're talking about. So. That's the, they're, they're, they're two of the most important things, the charging um, um, uh, method and also the disclosure of documents because there was effectively insufficient evidence. And the last bit I just want to mention, obviously we can go into different directions on this as well, is there was a, a fascinating um, piece that was actually published, I put in my newsletter, that was published about a week or so ago that's gone relatively under the radar on a, on a fantastic website called Law in Sport. And the Law and Sport um, website published an article from um, the, one of the research assistants of the CAS, one of the CAS arbitrators, Professor Haas. Now, this is interesting in my mind because, um, number one, Professor Haas was appointed by UEFA. So he's more likely to have been in favour of, or, or at least more sympathetic to UEFA. At least that's what UEFA would have potentially thought in the matter. And the, the, the research assistant was heavily critical of the majority decision um, of the CAS arbitrators, presumably his boss, Professor Haas, not being one of those. So um, there's, there's an interesting undercurrent going on here where Professor Haas 
um, either via his research assistant or the research assistant knowing what Professor Huss would have thought of these particular issues has come out quite strongly against the majority decision, which sort of goes some way to explain some of the frailties or criticisms of the decision overall. Okay, because yeah, I, I, I've seen, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, that Man- Manchester City effectively appointed or were given the opportunity to appoint one of the uh, one of the people on the panel. UEFA had a second, and then the chair was nominated by Manchester City as well. Is 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 that normal under circumstances of this nature? Well, it's not. Uh, it's almost you're almost there, Kieran. But what effectively happened is the president, uh, the, the 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 a nomination was put forward by Man City for the president, Rui Botiga Santos, um, is the gentleman's name. And UEFA didn't disagree and were happy to support that nomination. So they could have refused it if they wanted to, but they didn't. Now, that might mean one of two things. Either they wanted the process to go on quickly and or probably they felt confident that that individual would um, um, would be not necessarily sympathetic, but would look at the matters objectively and um, and be um, the, the right objective person to be able to um, to, to take matters forward. Great, cool. Right, that, that that clears it up in my head. Right, cool. Um, and also, th- there was a lot of comment at the time about information being time barred. Mm. But is it is it also true to say that it was time barred because that's in UEFA's own constitution? So, to a certain extent, UEFA have denied themselves the opportunity to have additional evidence put forward to support their case. Because their rules say that they couldn't, or rather, the, that that information, which is the equivalent of, you know, if if I'm a juror on on a on a legal case, where the where the judge turns around and says, you you've got to discount that when you're making when you're making your judgment as to whether this party is innocent or guilty. Uh, absolutely, and it's something for the drafters is the truth here because um, the actual discussion in the um, in the judgment. In relation to Article 37, which is uh, of the, the the FFP regulations with regards to time limitations and that five-year period, wasn't actually whether the five-year period applied. It was when the five-year period started from and then effectively went backwards to cover and what periods. Now, um, I think it's fair to say that over the last couple of years, UEFA have caused themselves significant issues with particular time periods. We had that issue with PSG where they were effectively out of time on a technicality for bringing the decision forward. We've now had a situation where UEFA's own drafted rules um, have effectively time-barred what could have been significant evidence to be able to be used as the basis for the charge. Um, so the, the question now is, is uh, I'm sorry, just one other point as well before I get onto that point, which is... Th- there could have been something, everything's beautifully beautiful to see in hindsight, but there could have been something in the regulations which would have said um, we're limiting the time period to five years, but where, for example, there are issues of uh, matters that were not fully, that the administrators were not fully aware of, i.e. UEFA, um, at the time, that shouldn't be a bar to then be able to look at that information when that information effectively um, arises. So, in effect, you, you know, the, a potentially breached party shouldn't take the benefit of not disclosing or not have provided information or hiding information, which would then benefit it um, in the case of then um, a charge being laid, but actually then being 
effectively time but UEFA being time barred against being able to then use that information accordingly so um yeah on on the charging point that we talked about on the time limits um, on the disclosure of documents um, on the insufficient evidence all of these are, are some of the really important um takeaway points because you know in, in the end the the majority decision and again you know, it's pretty um, fundamental to say this was not a unanimous decision by CAS. Um, the majority decision effectively said that the, the, the charge that was brought by UEFA couldn't be proved based on the evidence provided. Now, the, the other interesting thing as well, Kieran, is you will have seen maybe in the days that followed the ju- decision and judgment was that then there were a few more football leaks documents that then came out. Now, I don't know whether there are still documents being held back for explosive reasons or otherwise, but again, these these documents that were used by UEFA were six documents, six or seven out of apparently a cache of five and a half million that um, were apparently, according to Manchester City, criminally obtained. So there is a question over one, because witness statements have been provided by some very high profile individuals uh, from Manchester City and the ownership group, um, and more importantly, or as importantly, um, the CAS effectively have said there isn't um, uh, evidence that was provided by UEFA which demonstrated that all of the activities that were looked like were occurring, i.e. disguised um, funding, were actually executed. It's all one way. It's all internal. It's all Manchester City misunderstanding. If there are other documents which go some way to be able to explain that, you know, um, that potentially puts, you know, maybe there isn't anything and maybe that that's all there is to this matter. But um, in a way, if there are even more explosive documents that come to light at some point, there is the possibility, because Cass make reference to it specifically, that people could have purged themselves, which could potentially be um, an issue. But, you know, they've unequivocally said, Man City have said that, there was no indirect um, funding funneled through different ways in order to maximize commercial sponsorship. If that, then there is more unequivocal documentation or leaks that come out subsequently, then I'm sure UEFA will be looking at that, um, um, you know, very, very forensically. I can understand that. Yeah, I mean, we, we've seen since the Manchester City verdict, I think it was the last Friday that uh, that uh, UEFA are, are continuing uh, in, in terms of the adoption of financial fair play. Wolves have been fined. Uh, they've been given restrictions. Lille have had a very significant fine. I think it was €9 million. Euros. Um, is is financial fair play, is it is it going to continue in its present form? Do you think it needs some form of revision? Or or do you think to a certain extent that we're in the sort of the dying days of, an, of, a, of a Death Star and, and it's... Uh, you know, it, it's 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 just going to die and wither on the wither on the vine. I'm I'm more of the former rather than the latter. I, I've always been relative a relative proponent of the FFP system in that um, you know you can see the positive externalities that have happened since the um, you know since the regime has come into force, where you know um, collectively you know European clubs participating in European competition are, are making profits, whereas you know, that 1.7 billion deficit, which always gets um, used as the basis to demonstrate, you know, the dire state of European football um, is always something to bear in mind. Now, 
I almost think it's important to um, almost separate a few things. One is the policy, the regime, the regulations, and the other is the enforcement of the regulations to a degree. Now, if we're talking about substantive and systemic behavioral change and whether that has been successful, on the whole, I would say yes, and subject to what you think as well, because obviously, Kieran, with all of the the great stats and financial information that you provide to everybody on a daily basis um you know football clubs finances have um to a degree improved significantly especially at the elite level now if we're talking about particular cases and enforcement of particular cases then i i would i would argue there's probably something to be said rules have to be tweaked amended um you know strategic decisions have to be made as to how cases are prosecuted because in the end, Kieran, if you remember, for this particular matter, Man City had the best and brightest minds of the world as barristers and lawyers and solicitors involved in this. Um, you know, they had um, um, Lord Panic in the background, bowl accounts working on this matter as well. And also um, a QC called Paul Harris that I've come across on a number of occasions who is absolutely brilliant. So I'm not saying everyone else isn't or otherwise, but when you've got very, very elite clubs who are looking to defend their actions and being able to um, effectively work with the brightest minds in the world, never mind the country or Europe, you're going to have situations where enforcement isn't necessarily going to go to, to plan all the time. Yeah, I, 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 I think I saw a poll where Paul Harris came second in Manchester City's Player of the Season awards, only just only just pipped by Kevin De Bruyne. So clearly City fans do appreciate what he's done. It's, it's a uh, you know that there are smart people involved, but you know if 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 I was up on a charge, I'd want the smartest person to defend me. So I've, I've never really quite understood why uh, some people have been so sort of chippy about it. Uh, you know, if, you, you guys in the legal profession, we want you to be smart because it's you know it's it's our club or it's it's our family. In, in my case, as you probably might be aware, that's quite often up on a charge. Um, but if we, thank you so much. For that if we can just move on um, to another. Uh, controversial issue, I think it's fair to say, uh, one which is still rumbling on, um, and that's uh, in in respect of Newcastle United and uh, the the owners and directors test. The Premier League have been amazingly silent all throughout this process. Uh, the the and PIF after seventeen weeks of having an offer accepted by Mike Ashley, then just got fed up with uh, the, the the Premier League not saying you are acceptable, not saying you're not acceptable. Um, what what's your understanding as to why it would take so long to uh, give a yay and a nay on what on the face of it? Again, you know, I'm I'm looking at this from a layman's perspective. Looks a fairly benign test to pass i my understanding of it is do you have any outstanding convictions yes or no do you have lots of money yes or no and and given that we've what we've seen in the efl where uh sort of yeah, the past the parcel approach has been quite uh quite evident over the course of the last couple of years on which has resulted in some very sad things in respect to some clubs it, it does seem that they seem to be operating on a slightly different level on on the newcastle case well the 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 query is, without getting into the detail just yet, which is, and I put the question back to you, is that not a good thing? Is it not a good thing that, for example, the Premier League um, are not only taking their time, but making sure that the ODT is 
um, satisfied. Whereas, for example, we have lots of EFL matters where takeovers happen, proof of funding isn't provided, um, potentially um, uh, disqualifying events could actually be, have occurred for individuals that then potentially run or could potentially run football clubs. You know, my my view is is that everyone can't have it their way all the time. Is the truth. And if I was to err on the side of caution, being invo- and being involved in some takeovers as well over the years, my, and obviously if it's if I'm acting for the buyers, I'll obviously want the ODT test to be as smooth as possible. I think everybody understands the rules of the game, and I, I would probably say, and I'm, I haven't been involved in the Newcastle matter at all, is. I would say based on my experience, based on my reading, based on, you know, working with a number of the um, administrators generally is, you know, the very, very savvy operators at the Premier League, even at the EFL, where I've worked with a number of the lawyers there as well and the FA. And um, this, I believe, it looks like anyway, has probably been one of the most complicated geopolitical, political, politicised um um, takeovers that the Premier League has ever had to dealt, deal with. Ne- you know, never mind the the human rights um, clash, oggy journalist killing issue where his wife, his um, his bereaved wife, wrote to the the Premier League accordingly, and, um, and Mr. Masters. That then you've got this geopolitical schism between be out, Q and be in, um, where the Premier League had actually written to the WTO, who then subsequently wrote a report effectively linking the Saudi state with supporting BLQ, it all gets incredibly complicated and complex. Now, one of the ODT tests relates specifically to piracy. So, um, I, you know, there's lots of articles out there. There's some great stuff on The Athletic, for example, which goes into quite a lot of detail when I was doing a bit of research for this beforehand as to what the Premier League was saying, reports about what Newcastle believe or the owners, PCP and PIF, were potentially going to be um, uh, joy, uh, were effectively going to get authorization, etc. But, you know, in the end, a WTO report effectively saying that the Saudi state, and by the way, the Saudi state PIF being the effectively the, uh, the investment fund that is going to be investing into um, Newcastle, has been supporting a potentially pirated channel that... Um, the Premier League has been lobbying to have closed down, whilst at the same time be in providing over five hundred million pounds for the MENA region for uh, the Premier League, puts the Premier League in a very, very difficult, wider, um, commercial and strategic um, um, position. So, you know, m- my own view for what it's worth is. Um, there's obviously tons of commercial stuff that we're never going to know because it's been confidential. Uh, and that is, in effect, the reason why the Premier League haven't come out and said very much, and rightly so, because they wouldn't want to breach anyone's confidences and the confidentiality of the submissions that have been provided to the club, um, provided to the Premier League by the club and by the potential um, new owners. So I really don't expect the Premier League to be saying very much at all about what has happened. I, I think they would come out with a very straight back and bat and say, well, if PCP and PIF have effectively um, withdrawn from the process, then we have nothing more to say about it. And I would have thought at the same time that PCP and PIF will have um, particular obligations as well as to the submissions that were made to the Premier League as to what they they can and can't say. Also, those confidentiality obligations to Mike Ashley um, and the club. So, you know, 
everyone want thing, wants things immediately. My view here is there's a wider point, which is if fans jet more generally are saying, we need more robust procedures. We need to make sure that the right owners come into a club. We need to make sure that the right financial models um, and structuring is in place to make sure that we don't have Berry situations again. We don't have, you know, Macclesfield situations again or whatever where players aren't being paid at the low level. But that should also apply to the high level. My view is, is if that's the case, people should get used to potentially more, um, uh, more structured and longer times to potentially buy clubs because that ultimately is the safeguarding measure that needs to be put in place. Fair enough. Fair enough. Or, or we could end up in a situation with Wigan whereby the the, the evidence is given um, by, by the prospective owner and then they appear to just go and change their mind, which, of course, is their prerogative, uh, which, which, of course, led to that club going into administration. It, would, would you be in favour of some form of uh, goodwill bond going into an escrow account or something of that nature when somebody acquires a club to give protection, something similar to what we see with uh, you know, in the travel industry and other industries which, uh, which have suffered uh, you know, quite spectacular collapses as well? Kieran, it already happens. So, for example, under the uh, the Premier League sustainability regulations, if clubs want to spend over a certain amount of money to get to the £105 million overspending threshold, they effectively have to guarantee and ring fence those monies. So um, that, in effect, is something that Gary Neville spoke quite um, articulately about um, um, a few months ago, which is that that, need, that could effectively be on one side, on the ownership side, um, to provide more comfort to the EFL or the FA or the Premier League um, that um, monies aren't just going to be pulled out or not used or not spent accordingly. And whilst on the other side, it actually could benefit um, um, a a sort of reduction of restrictions on the FFP side, which is, okay, um, we're going to widen the acceptable loss limits but what we're also going to do is if you want to spend over those acceptable loss limits within reason within reason then you've got to put that secured funding down you've got to put that ring fenced amount down you've got to provide that secured funding so that if um for all of the money that you are saying you're going to be putting into the business that uh, the club that is then um being spent on long-term contracts that if then that money isn't forthcoming those individual owners are personally on the hook to underwrite those costs. And I think that sounds like a very sensible um, possibility. Great, great, cool. I mean, in terms of the owners and directors test, is is it an impossible job to have a set of rules which is going to satisfy the selling side, the buying side, the football authorities and the fans? Well, I think it's important, two things. I think it's important to put it into context. Obviously, the more high-profile matter the more it gets brought to the fore. But on the whole, uh, Richard Masters has talked about the fact that I think during his time and during Mr. Scudamore's time, only between 10 and 20 individuals um, or potential takeovers, presumably individuals, have been rejected. So we're not talking about massive, massive numbers. And I think in a way, the, the most recent issue clouds the overall picture. Now, is the ODT fit for purpose? They've, they, they, the, the leagues are constantly extending the actual restrictions. But again, the point being, as, as you've well said in previous pods, is it's an objective test. It's an objective measure. And a lot of criticism has come in the past about why it is objective rather than subjective. Now, subjective then 
leads on to all different types of issues about, you know, an arbitration panel or somebody making a decision about whether someone, you know, because of their previous actions or otherwise, which might not fit into a particular box ticking exercise, should be able to um, be able to own a club. Now, if I take um, a similar a similar example, but uh, an example by analogy is the SRA, which is the regulations that govern me as a solicitor. There is a thing called the suitability test. And that suitability test is a subjective test that can effectively be um, um, assessed on the basis of subjective criteria that have to be used and effectively um, deployed reasonably. So if there is going to be um, a wholesale change, it's nothing to say that there can't be subjective measures put in place. But at the moment, it would seem that what the Premier League and the Football League's position is, is to extend as much as possible the objective measures in order um, to make sure that things can be effectively managed and measured in a, a more straightforward manner. My view, which I know, again, sorry, you've talked about previously, is that what actually needs to happen is there needs to be greater monitoring once a, cl- once a club has been bought. And that needs to be, I think, um, uh, strengthened and tightened, either by bonds, either by particular monies, either by you know more stringent future financial information. And if you can do that, then I think it's not necessarily just the gateway, which is the issue. It's the ongoing, which sometimes is more of the problem. Right. That's brilliant. Thank Well, I've, I've taken up a lot of your time, Daniel. I, I could I've got a, I could pick up another dozen subjects. Uh, but uh, you know, time, time is against us. And apologies for my dog whimpering in the background. <laughs> yeah, I hope he's not whimpering because of my detail. <laughs> no, no, no. He wants to walk. Um, That's fine. Well, look, mate. Look, hopefully, we can. I can. Uh, if if I'm allowed back, we can talk about some more issues in the future. Brilliant. Yeah. And um, Daniel, where where can we find you on social media? By the way, Daniel's got a book out called Done Deal. I've got a copy in my book rack, which which has actually been seen once or twice on television as well uh, mainly because of my the strategic placing of it on on my legendary bookcase uh, but if uh, people want to follow you on social media or your youtube channel wh- where's the best place to look yeah so if you um uh, can follow me on twitter which is football law um i also do some uh, videos and bits and pieces on um, instagram as well um on con- sort of explaining different contemporary issues in football uh, my youtube channel is uh, football law as well um, and you'll be pleased to know I'm also on TikTok, but I'm not necessarily doing as many dances or voiceovers. Um, I'm just doing some uh, small clips and, until I'm banned, basically, I guess. Wow, that is that is so down with the kids. That is that is really brilliant. Okay, well, thank you again, Daniel. Um, absolutely uh, great insight there. Really appreciate it. Um, as you know, myself and Kevin, we are two of the best pub lawyers in the country, um, but there's a reason why we stick in the pub. Uh, so thanks again and uh, all the best. Pleasure. Thanks, Gary. Well, he's a uh, he's a chatty little fella, isn't he? <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. If he's if he's on the if if that was an actual paid consultation, you really would be doing the wind up sign, wouldn't you? Very interesting, though. And I, I guess the real headline is that Man City story. Yes, uh, you know the, the fact that it was only a majority decision, and clearly the person who was the minority uh, on the panel is very, very pissed off with yeah. uh, with, with with the two other judges. Um, so 
it, it's, it's, is it over? We, you never know. You know. If more evidence comes to light, could there be another charge by uh, UEFA? We, we'll have to wait and see, but I think they'd have to have overwhelming evidence for that to go ahead. All right, thanks. Well, thanks for the interview. I think that really that was really very interesting. Um, if you would like to support the price of football, you can do by visiting supporter.acast.com forward slash price of football, or you can just click the link if you're listening in the Acast app, or if you're a filthy rich multinational company who wants to sponsor us and doesn't mind the occasional bit of bad press coming from Potty Mouth Maguire, then get in touch with producer guy. And um, a big thank you to everyone who has supported us so far as we end today's pod with a, a section I like to call relax shout out um and that's not because kieran i don't want to thank our wonderful supporters but because i'm aware that the more sincere i try to sound the less i manage it which is um <laughs> which is not good for a stand-up comedian but first of all tony h let, let's we're going to shout out a few people uh tony h says he's loving the show so different from the other run-of-the-mill podcast that's very kind of you uh stuart the b um stuart the b says it's actually the one podcast i don't miss and I listen to it religiously. Now, Stuart, under normal circumstances, I would say you listen to it on your knees, but the mood Kieran's in of late, I can't <laughs> risk it. I really genuinely can't risk it. Uh, and in my business, that is called having your cake and eating it because I imply the joke and I blame Kieran for it. I can't lose. Um, <laughs> Stuart the Bee also says, more Brentford, please, and do answer my emails and questions. I shall refer that to Guy, the producer. Stuart, we are mere employees, I'm afraid. We have no influence in who answers your emails or questions. But thank you for your comments. Christian says, thanks for answering my questions. Oh, I hope Stuart didn't listen to that bit. Um, and providing us all with a fantastic and unique podcast. Uh, Bish. Uh-huh. Bish says, thanks for keeping us entertained and informed during lockdown. I am an Albion fan. I, obviously I say that I'm an Albion fan so I love the banter between Kevin and Kieran and thanks for proving my theory that I'd rather talk to a Palace fan about football any day than a glory hunting London Red and there's a little note from Guy saying can you leave it there please no further comments <laughs> good luck Guy <laughs> Kieran when did you people start calling yourself Albion fans I mean I don't expect you to call yourself seaweed or scum but Alb- Albion you know, you're a Brighton fan aren't you Albion fan well, we, 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 we refer really? to ourselves as the Albion, just like you do refer to yourself as Palace. Yeah, yes, because we are yeah, Albion. You could be any. There's, there's only one Palace. There's loads of Albions. Also, I didn't like Bish. I'm sure Bish is a lovely bloke, but I didn't. I'm, I'm, there's an implied criticism in there about me not being a glory hunter because he's implying there won't be any glory at Sellers Park any days. But anyway, Kieran, I hope you and Bish enjoy many a chat about the Albion. Uh, but don't bash the Bish. <laughs> Do you know what? I, uh, my God, I've, my mind's normally very in tune to where you can go with any any word, and it just uh, didn't occur to me for a second. I wondered why he'd gone quiet. He just <laughs> um, David Harris says, "Thanks for such an informative podcast. It's great to listen and to know what's happening behind the scenes at clubs. I hope that one day my club, Bradford City, may become relevant enough to be mentioned. Um, I wouldn't hope for that, David. If I was you, not being mentioned on this pod is good news normally. Uh, and incidentally, David, I have family in Thornton in Bradford, so if you ever get your car nicked, let me know. Uh, they'll sort it out for you. That actually, Kieran, David makes. I don't think we've ever mentioned Bradford on this." on this pod is that because they're a, a, a solid well-run team i think they're an intriguingly run team in in the sense that they've got a season ticket policy whereby the more people that renew the lower the prices oh, the well, season okay. tickets um they did win my award last year before we started the pod for the club which had the, the shortest set of accounts in football Oh really? <laughs> um, so the reason why I don't talk about them is because there is nothing to talk about because they won't. They even by the standard of uh, abbreviated accounts, there there's our brief. 
Well, there, there you go, David. That's something to be proud of about Bradford. Um, many things to be proud of about Bradford City, but the shortest accounts in Kieran's list. That's great. Um, Stefan says, thanks for a great show and greetings from Norway. I do like that word, greetings. Greetings from Norway. Um, thank you, Stefan. Uh, Tucker. Uh, I think it means a thousand thanks. And if I've mispronounced that, take it up with Annette from Norwegian 101 on YouTube. Um, Air on the G-string, A-Y-R, which is a a very, that's a sort of thing I like. Air on the G-string, great name. Air Air says, great show. Any chance of more lower league Scottish content or even bad news stories about Kilmarnock? That's the spirit. I do do love a bit of South Asia beef. Um, and who would have thought Kilmarnock would get mentioned twice today, three times now? Um, yes, the, the easiest way, we do have a good relationship with Scottish football, I, I hope. We do keep an eye on it. The easiest way to find out more about lower league Scottish football air is, is to ask questions, to be honest. So for fans of any club in a, in a lower division, whatever country you're in, we the news stories don't often percolate through to us. Uh, but if you want to ask us questions about your clubs, and of course we will do our best to answer them. Um, and finally, Morton Verowee says, great show. I've read Kieran's book, of course. And it would be great fun if you tried to pronounce my surname. Now, how did I do, Morton? It's spelled V-A-R, then O with a dash for it, Y. And I went for Verowee. So, and also, Morton, what, is, what does he mean he's read your book, of course? As though it would be a foolish thing for nobody not to have read your book. It's like you just casually throw that into a dinner party conversation. Of course, I've read Kieran Maguire's book. But anyway, is he? Do you know how to pronounce Verowee? I think it's Verowee. I'll go along with you, Kevin, on that one. If, if we're either both damned or neither of us. I'm, I'm going to I'm going to take that, Kieran. You saying I'll go along with you on that one, and I'm going to make that my every time you say something I disagree with, I'm just going to press a button and the words I'll go along with you on that one, Kevin. Um, if you do have a question for us about lower league Scottish football, or indeed any, the, and I, I suspect some of your questions will be about that salary cap because. Um, they may well be for me disguised questions to be perfectly honest because I that I that seems to, it's such a complicated issue that salary cap one Kieran isn't it and it's it's going to be challenged somehow somewhere I imagine it's going to be at top of our list two out of three pods um but if you do have any questions it's questions at priceoffootball.com and I hope you have a lovely weekend and we will see you on Monday Kieran will we not we will indeed. So thanks, everybody, for your all support. Uh, we, we, it does make a difference to us. We, we do we do actually put a bit of effort into this. And um, also thanks for your, your great reviews. Uh, if, if you if you want to use that purple icon on Apple, uh, we have been told it makes a difference. You can you can say whatever you want about us. But give us five stars if you could, if you, if you like the show. Um, and you say it's eyebrow raising stuff. You can say he's potty mouth pervert. We don't care. Um, it's not for our ego. Uh, it's it's for business, and that that comes from, from Guy the producer. Apparently, it will help us get up the charts. Um, and, and we are trying to get sponsors, uh, though uh, some of the sponsors might be thinking twice. Okay, so stay safe, boys and girls. And that, my friends, is how you fake sincerity. The price of football. I'm for the